This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'll, I'll give you a kind of a section title for each section of the talk. <clears throat> um, it might seem off topic, but let's begin with church architecture. During roughly the middle of the 20th century, ideas from modernist architecture began to find their way into the design of churches. In America, this shift happened partly due to a transformation of the major schools of architecture upon the arrival of refugees from the German Bauhaus in the 1930s, including its founder, the architect Walter Gropius, who was quickly embraced as the chair of the Department of Architecture at Harvard University. Uh, if you don't know, the Bauhaus was a school of art and design in the first part of the 20th century. The guiding idea of the modernist movement was functionalism, encapsulated in the phrase, form follows function. It doesn't mean what you might think. In particular, it doesn't mean that buildings should be designed to facilitate the activities that occur within them, a principle that seems reasonable enough. Nor does it mean that buildings should be designed so that their form reveals their function, again, a reasonable enough principle. In fact, the churches that have been built in accordance with these principles, that is to say with the principle form follows function, looks anything like churches, uh, but instead corporate headquarters or spaceships or giant party hats, piles of cardboard boxes and so on. Nor do they particularly facilitate liturgical practice. For example, many of them lack any reasonable way for the priest to process at the beginning of mass, and often only a lengthy search will reveal a tabernacle. One can begin to understand why church architecture might have gone this way by reading a little book, Speaking of Liturgical Architecture, which reproduces a series of lectures delivered by Father Hans Reinholdt to numerous liturgists in a summer school at the University of Notre Dame in the 1940s. There, he has much to say about honesty in construction, which he calls functionalism in its true sense. Father Reinholdt is taking his cue from modernist architects. Their phrase, form follows function, means that the interior of a building is designed in accordance with some highly theorized version of the activities that will take place inside, and that the remainder of the building must be honest to that design, meaning that the exterior of the building is a kind of minimal covering that does not appreciably depart from the shape of the interior. It's to be a skin over the interior, like the plastic shell around a laser printer or the metal sheathing on a tractor. This idea is summarized by the Swiss architect Le Corbusier with the dictum that the interior program should dictate the outer form, and more memorably by his famous saying that houses are machines for living, just like tractors are machines for plowing. Modern materials, steel, safety glass, and concrete are the weapons of choice and indeed make the realization of this idea even possible in the first place. The modernists did not shy away from the natural consequence of their views, which we may state simply and starkly, beauty doesn't matter. Father Reinhold is circumspect in his adoption of this consequence, confining himself to critique rather than outright condemnation. For example, he opines that the central towers of cathedrals, such as Canterbury Cathedral, though lovely, excuse me, lo though lovely creations, he says, create architectural emphasis around the comparatively insignificant bells, if anything and that the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople is marred by, quote, misplaced accents. 
the fathers of architectural modernism are not circumspect. <clears throat> Le Corbusier is clear and forceful, writing that the desire to decorate everything about one is a false spirit and an abominable small perversion. In a discussion of design in the workplace, he writes that the ideal is to go to work in the superb office of a modern factory, rectangular and well-lit, painted in white. In short, good riddance to beauty and hello to cubicles. <clears throat> the death of beauty in music also was promoted in the 20th century. It isn't as noticeable to the average person because very few people are willing to subject themselves to the result, which is easily avoided in ways that oppressive office buildings and brutalist churches are not. But it happened all the same. The history of its happening is interesting and worth pursuing, but there isn't time here. So let's just skip to the end where, we might, where we'll find attitudes ranging from dismissal to hostility. For example, the French philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard celebrates what he takes to be the end of an aesthetics, that of the beautiful, in the name of the final destination of the mind, which is freedom. A decidedly more hostile attitude is expressed by the German philosopher Theodor Adorno in his book, The Philosophy of New Music. There he writes that the new music of his day, by which he means 12-tone serial music, sacrifices itself to meaninglessness. He writes, it has taken all the darkness and guilt of the world on itself. All its happiness is in the knowledge of unhappiness. All its beauty is in the denial of the semblance of the beautiful. Adorno, by the way, wrote music of his own, which definitely lives up to his own ideals. One might understand or even forgive Adorno, gripped as he was by the evils perpetrated through two world wars, but we don't have to follow him, nor indeed the considerably less extreme opponents of beauty in music. Instead, I propose to make a seemingly radical move in the opposite direction, to consider the thesis that good music just is beautiful music. More precisely, what it means for music to be good as music is that it is beautiful. My method will not be to defend this thesis directly, but to explore what it means in the first place. The hope being that understanding its meaning and especially its consequences might render it more plausible. The thesis would I think be de denied by many, if not most contemporary philosophers of music, even the ones who are generally sympathetic to beauty. For example, Gerald Levinson, who has contributed much to contemporary philosophy of music and who clearly endorses the thesis that some beautiful music is good, he's not Adorno, does not accept, Levinson does not accept that all good music is beautiful. He adopts a widespread characterization of beauty in general as that which affords pleasure in the perceiving or beholding. The pleasure he has in mind here is a kind of sensual pleasure which with specific reference to music, he describes as that which seduces, charms, and gently conquers us. If musical beauty is understood in this manner, then Levinson is clearly correct that good music need not be beautiful. There's plenty of excellent music that does not, at least not typically, conquer the listener with seduction and charm. The adagio of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata might have that effect on listeners. I don't know if this will come through. I'm gonna to try to play just a few bars of it, just to, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. All right, so if you've, if you've heard it before, you know what I'm talking about now. 
Uh, so the adagio, that, that what you just heard, might have the effect of seduction and charm on some listeners, but the presto agitato is stormy and ferocious, not seductive and charming. Here's the, 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 the presto agitato is the third movement of that, of that sonata. Here's just a little piece of it. I remember when I was about 14 years old and I thought I could play Beethoven because I could play the Moonlight Sonata and then my teacher gave me that. So the presto agitato is, is, is stor it's not seductive and charming, it's stormy and ferocious. Both I would say, and I'm sure Levinson would agree, are good music, although not beautiful by his definition. From the point of view of tradition, this conception of beauty as what is sensually pleasing when perceived is overly narrow. And as Levinson himself shows convincingly, it severs the connection between beauty and goodness so that beauty has become close to irrelevant in our understanding of music. And it rarely makes an appearance in contemporary critique. It's just another way that music can sound alongside sounding ferocious or plaintive or lighthearted. And it's certainly lost its capacity to explain what makes good music good. <clears throat> I propose to recapture that capacity for beauty to reconsider the matter from the point of view of tradition, a tradition of thinking about beauty that begins with ancient Greek philosophers and continues developing, but not radically changing through the Middle Ages and beyond. I'll attempt to describe an account of musical beauty that arises naturally, I would say, from that tradition and that reconnects beauty with goodness. Good music is beautiful music in the fuller and traditional sense of the term beautiful. So this is the next section of, this, uh, of the talk, the great theory of beauty. This section has two, two subsections. So the first one's called proportion, clarity, integrity. In the Western philosophical tradition, two thoughts about the nature of beauty guided theory for centuries. The first is that, the is that beauty consists of some sort of proportion or harmony. One thinks initially of the Pythagorean tradition, ancient Greek, and its fascination with the ways in which number can be used to describe things most obviously in our context, sounds. For example, Pythagoras himself seems to have both discovered and been very struck by the numerical relations that characterize musical intervals. Greek and Roman authors, notably Plato and Augustine, adopted something like this Pythagorean understanding of beauty, not only in music, but, it, but generally. Augustine, for example, writes that in all the arts, it is harmony that pleases. Sorry, I lost my place here. It's harmony that pleases, where am I? And by which all things beautiful are made. <clears throat> this idea of beauty as a kind of numerical proportion or harmony has often been extended to other domains. One could mention any thousands of works from Vitruvius's treatise on architecture to contemporary studies of perceived facial beauty. A second traditional thought, so the first traditional thought is beauty is harmony. A second traditional thought about beauty is often attributed to the Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus, who takes up the Pythagorean idea and observes that it applies only to complex things. It takes at least two parts in order for there to be a proportion between them. And even in the case of some complex things, argues Plotinus, beauty does not always consist in numerical proportion. He is, in essence, doubting that proportion can explain all instances of beauty, writing, what proportion is to be found in noble context noble conduct, which he takes to be beautiful, in excellent laws, in abstract thought, 
These are all things that in Plotinus's broad notion of, of beauty, and indeed in the broad notion that I'm trying to develop here, according to tradition, could be potential uh, candidates for being beautiful. In fact, Plotinus does, not, does allow that there could be some form of proportion in such things, but he argues that proportion does not explain their beauty. Instead, regarding material things first, uh, Plotinus proposes that the material thing becomes beautiful by communicating the thought that flows from the divine. In other words, it's beautiful in as much as it reflects or manifests a divine idea. Plotinus offers a helpful analogy. He writes, on what principle does the architect, when he finds the house standing before him correspondent with his inner ideal of a house, pronounce it beautiful? Is it not that the house before him is the inner idea stamped upon the mass of exterior matter? He goes on to extend this thought to immaterial things, but the point as stated here is good enough for our purposes. The beauty of the house consists in its exhibiting a single unified idea in the diversity of the materials of the house. Plotinus's account comes to be described in terms of the word clarity or Latin claritas. Other terms such as brilliance are used as well. It'll be important for us to remember, however, that the thought behind these terms is that a beautiful thing somehow shows or brings to light an idea. Moreover, although Plotinus motivates his view by calling the Pythagorean view into question, tradition does not quite follow him on that score. Instead, both views are adopted and combined to form what the intellectual historian Vladislav Tatarkowitz calls the great theory of beauty, and I'm going to follow him in, in using that label. The great theory, the thought that beauty requires proportion and clarity, harmony and brilliance, whatever terms we want to use, can be found throughout the Western intellectual tradition right up until the theory's decline beginning in the 18th century. Uh, for example, Pseudo-Dionysius, the unknown author of the very influential treatise On Divine Names, says that beauty consists in suitableness and splendor. The word, for anyone who reads Greek, the word there is, is, is tantalizingly close to the word eoarmonia, which would mean good harmony. Following authorities, such as Augustine and Pseudo-Dionysius, medieval authors adhered to the great theory, which we also find stated succinctly by Aquinas. In his commentary on Pseudo-Dionysius's divine names, Aquinas uses the standard terminology of proportion or harmony. He uses the Latin phrase consonantia, which is another common phrase used here, and clarity or brilliance, claritas, to characterize the nature or account, what Aquinas calls the ratio of beauty. Also in the Summa Theologiae, in a brief side note about beauty, Aquinas says that beauty has three requirements the second and third of which are repeated from the ancient sources that we've already mentioned, and the first of which, that is to say the first appearing in his order of exposition, had made an earlier appearance in medieval theorizing, probably beginning with Augustine's observation that harmony creates unity. Aquinas writes, three things are required for beauty. First, integrity or perfection, for things that are diminished are for that reason ugly, and second, due proportion or consonance, and last, clarity, whence things that have brilliant color, color are said to be beautiful. Aquinas is thus clearly an adherent to the great theory, although in the end he has very little to say about it, or indeed about beauty in general. We could speculate about what he might have said, and especially in the mid and late 20th century, there was a great deal of such speculation. But in fact, he says almost nothing, 
And so we would be indeed left to speculate. Uh, I'm not really the person to do that. So instead of speculating about what Aquinas would have said, I wanna consider instead by way of review and injecting a little more detail, how these elements of beauty, which we might as well call proportion, clarity, and integrity, how they might inform us about the nature of beauty in general. So first, proportion. The natural thought about proportion is that it refers to obvious arithmetic or geometric relations, and especially to forms of symmetry. And it seems to be true of many types of artifact and even many natural things that they are generally found to be more attractive when they exhibit those relations. One's mind immediately turns to the Greek use of the golden ratio in architecture and painting, or the widespread appearance of that same ratio, often in the form of a, the Fibonacci sequence, which was a medieval discovery, in natural objects uh, ranging from uh, sunflowers. Did I miss the sunflowers? I missed the sunflowers. I had a picture of sunflowers, but you all know what they look like. In natural objects ranging from sunflowers to nautilus shells, or the whole number ratios that define standard musical harmonies. However, these examples, as spectacular and important as they are, are not the whole story for at least two reasons. First, we're just playing at numerology until we understand why such numerical and geometric proportions convey beauty. The accounts that we need are likely to be domain specific. And while I think there are interesting speculations to be made in the domain of music, I'm not gonna burden with them, I'm not gonna burden you with them right now. The second reason that numeric and geometric ratio is not the end of the account of proportion is simply that the concept of due proportion, Aquinas and others often, uh, often put the modifier uh, due or debita in front of proportion in order to uh, specify that we're talking about due proportion, good proportion. That, the, that this concept of proportion or due proportion covers additional territory. Imagine, for example, a fugue, a musical fugue, in which one of the parts dominates the other. Such a composition would fail as a fugue precisely because the parts are out of balance, i.e. disproportionate. Imagine a choir, or maybe you don't have to imagine it. Imagine a choir in which the voice of a single straining tenor pierces the air. The problem again is a lack of due proportion. Imagine a classical opera in which great care is put into bringing the dramatic conflict to a head, and then by way of resolution, a single player speaks the line, "Ah, oh, heck, let's all go home. The result might be funny and would certainly be jarring, but the audience would feel justly cheated precisely because the overall beauty of the opera had been marred. The point of course is that, the propor is that proportion is important for beauty in several respects. Saying exactly what they are and exactly what good proportion amounts to is a task for theorists and practitioners of the various arts. And it's certainly behind, beyond the scope of this general overview, but I hope that the examples that I've given illustrate the idea. So second, clarity. As for proportion, there are at least two senses of clarity that are relevant to beauty. In his quick recap of the great theory, Aquinas alludes to one of them, namely clarity as the capacity to have an impact or to command attention. Aquinas gives the example of bright color. In order for our account to be general, we must not suppose that the impact in question is in all cases produced by the kind of jolt or effusion that one might associate with bright colors or bright trumpets. Rather, we might say that the beautiful is striking, perhaps in the manner of, there's sunflowers, I knew I had them somewhere, perhaps in the manner of the brightness of a field of sunflowers or a chorus of trumpets, but equally so in the manner of the serene or muted tones of a Japanese garden or a quiet oboe. 
The clarity of the beautiful thus makes the beautiful thing impressive. It makes an impression. This more general understanding of clarity leads naturally to a second sense of clarity emphasized by the Platonic tradition, namely clarity as the exhibition, one might say exposition or even revelation of an idea. In the case of natural objects, the idea is just the idea of the thing itself. The tradition is united on this point. All natural things are, as God's creation, potentially beautiful and are actually beautiful insofar as they exhibit or expose or reveal God's intention, that is, God's idea of what the thing is, which is, of course, just what the thing is. Artifacts, too, can exhibit an idea, the maker's idea or the designer's idea, as Plotinus illustrated with the example of the architect's judgment of the beauty of a house. We'll come back to that point later. It's very important. Third, integrity. <clears throat> For the third element of beauty, integrity, Aquinas helpfully offers the alternative term perfection, which in this context does not mean a state of being unable to be improved, but a condition that contributes to making a thing what it is. The point is that the beautiful thing is a whole, not missing relevant or available perfections, but also not exhibiting irrelevant or incongruous features. A sunflower that's missing half of its petals is not, be is not a beautiful sunflower which is not to say that it might not be beautiful in some other manner, but it's not beautiful in the manner that a sunflower is. The same goes for a sunflower painted black. In both cases, it fails the test of integrity. It's no longer what a sunflower is, or at least not as well, as perfectly as it could be. Now here we need to offer a correction to a common mistake in discussions of the great theory. For natural objects, and for, sorry, let me re-say that. For natural objects, Integrity means just what the example of the sunflower suggests. A thing is more perfect and in that way more beautiful, the greater extent to which it exhibits all and only the features of the thing that it is or the type of thing that it is. It's very tempting and unfortunately some people have uh, concluded that, for example, a painting of an imperfect natural object or one that represents the object incompletely or obscurely in some manner cannot be beautiful. This conclusion is a grave mistake. What matters for the painting is its integrity as a painting. It should have the perfections that are definitive of the kind of thing that it is, namely a painting. Its being a painting of an imperfect object does not make it as a painting imperfect. In the realm of painting, one could consider endless examples from Byzantine icons to the works of Picasso. In the realm of music, the point is even clearer. After all, most music is not uh, in any relevant, is not in any kind of relevant form of imagery in the first place. That is to say, most music does not attempt to be an image of a natural object in the way that a paintings much more often are images of natural objects. <clears throat> now here we're going to enter difficult territory and we'll have to return to it later. The difficulty is born of the fact that a painting, and indeed by definition any work of art, is an artifact, not a natural object. Like Plotinus's architect, the painter is the cause of the what it is of the painting, or as Aquinas puts it, the artificial form of the painting. The term artificial here just refers to the fact that the painting uh, as an artifact is the kind of thing that it is, a landscape painting, let's say, through the operation of art rather than nature. So what then are we to say of integrity as it contributes to the beauty of artifacts? What if Plotinus's architect designed an ugly house or an ugly church? 
would the plan perfectly executed produce an artifact that has integrity in the sense relevant to beauty? Or consider my latest musical composition. Would you like some coffee? Yes, I'd like some coffee. Don't, no, nobody sell that, please. Must we say that it has the same degree of integrity as a musical work as, say, Palestrina's Mass for Pope Marcellus? In case you don't know what that sounds like, here's a little. All right, so we're going to have to return to this question below. It's a question that is created by the problem that uh, musical works are artifacts. They're created by people. All right, so section two, the great theory, section two of section two, sorry, subsection two of section two. This paper has three sections, so we're, we're making fine progress here. Uh, appeal and allure. Uh, at the outset, we said that the we set aside the contemporary idea expressed by Levinson that beauty is a matter of how the beautiful thing makes one feel. But it would be silly and negligent to deny that we typically do feel a certain way in the presence of beauty. <clears throat> Isn't that feeling part of the picture? A similar issue arises in discussions of the very closely related concept of the good. One may describe the good in terms of perfection. For example, a good sunflower has the perfections of a sunflower, and a good tractor has the perfections of a tractor. But until one recognizes the relationship between desire and the good, until one recognizes that in some sense to be good is to be desirable, the story is definitely incomplete. Indeed, in his discussion of the good in the Summa, Aquinas raises this issue also about beauty, writing that what we call beautiful, uh, sorry, writing that we call beautiful that which, having been perceived, pleases. Now, commentators sometimes refer to the, not, not very good commentators, I should say, sometimes refer to this statement as Aquinas's definition of beauty. But we've got to be careful. As Aquinas himself makes clear in his commentary on Aristotle's ethics, the Nicomachean, the Nicomachean ethics, the corresponding definition of the good that Aristotle gives there as that which all desire is a definition in the sense of specifying the characteristic effect of a thing. So Aquinas' statement about beauty is, in fact, explicitly offered in parallel to that definition of the good. I don't have time to read you the whole passage, but Aquinas clearly has Aristotle in mind here. And so it has to be understood in the same manner, not as providing an account of what beauty is or requires. That job has already been done by the great theory, but as stating the characteristic effect of beauty, namely to please upon being perceived. This observation is very important because if we take pleasing upon, upon being perceived as our account of beauty, then we would very quickly be pushed to the view, which is common enough, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is more or less the contemporary view that Levinson adopted and more or less the antithesis of the great theory, whose theorizing about proportion, clarity, and integrity would be pointless in the face of that alternative account. At the same time, Ignoring the affective dimension, I'm saying the word affect with an A, ignoring the affective dimension of beauty would be a harmful omission in our account. The most important observation about the affect caused by beauty is that experiencing it is not a matter of passive reception. The perception involved in the experience of beauty is a kind of cognitive activity. 
by that I do not necessarily mean discursive thought, but it's 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 something that happens in your power within your power of cognition. Speaking of the great theory, Augustine says that the elements of beauty are perceived not by the eye of the flesh, nor by any such sense, in other words, any such physical sense, but by the mind having understood. Augustine's word for perceived here is conspicitur, which carries also the sense of careful attentiveness or even admiration. Aquinas too is explicit on this matter. Indeed, he's so confident that being pleased is the result of cognitive activity that he puts the point the other way around. One reason we know that beauty is pleasing is that unlike goodness, which concerns the appetite, beauty concerns the cognitive power of apprehension. The observation that the pleasure of beauty is attendant on an activity of the mind both prevents the notion of beauty from disintegrating into relativism, implied in, into the kind of relativism implied by the formula, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and explains how it's possible even for reasonable, well-intentioned people to disagree about it. The crucial point is that apprehension, like knowledge, for example, is a success term. Just as one cannot know a falsehood, so also can one cannot apprehend due proportion or an idea clearly conveyed or the integrity of an object in the absence of those things. Just as reasonable disputes about knowledge are commonplace and not generally mysterious, so also differences in people's capacity to apprehend the elements of beauty in specific cases are commonplace and often easy to understand. I've seen it happen many times with Gregorian chant. People who are unfamiliar with it often find that it makes very little sense. The chants often seem to kind of meander randomly and to end in the middle of a musical phrase or a musical idea. But then once people gain familiarity with it, that is to say, a greater capacity to apprehend its musical features, uh, those kinds of reactions tend to, tend to disappear. I'm suggesting, in other words, that the great theory, understood in the way that I've described, can both render beauty a substantive concept and can explain disagreements about it, or at least the possibility of disagreements about it. It accomplishes the former, making beauty a substantive concept, by proposing that there are genuine requirements for beauty. It accomplishes the latter, explaining disagreement, by acknowledging that just as we might incorrectly have the feeling of certainty that attends true knowledge, we might also incorrectly have a sense of charm or awe that can accompany the true apprehension of beauty or incorrectly fail to apprehend it when it's there. Much more should be said about these points, but we're gonna move on now to consider music specifically in this light. So this is the third and uh, I'm pretty sure final section of, the, uh, of this talk. And it has two much shorter subsections, one on musical practices. The great theory points the way to an understanding of musical beauty by posing three closely related questions. And they are, what constitutes due proportion in music? What kinds of ideas can be conveyed by music? And how can the music convey them with clarity? What makes a piece of music the thing that it is? A moment's reflection will be all you need to realize the enormity of these questions. So I'm just gonna examine some kinds of things that might be said in reply to each. And I'm gonna begin with the last one. What makes a musical piece the kind of thing that it is? It comes really to this. What is a musical piece? Now by piece here, I have in mind the broadest possible category of musical items. Any snippet of sound, bit of sound, short or long, that we might reasonably be inclined to call music and that might reasonably be a bearer of musical beauty. 
The question is, as I'm sure you can imagine, widely discussed in the philosophy of music, and I'm certainly not going to try to reveal all the proposed answers here. Instead, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the answer that I prefer, and it begins with the observation that music happens in a kind of space, a musical superstructure of sorts, in terms of which, I'm tempted to say, inside of which musical pieces can exist. Of course, I'm using the word space metaphorically here. Here's an analogy to illustrate the idea. Poems are made of sounds, but not just any sounds. Languages, or better, linguistic practices, define the admissible sounds in that language and define which combinations of sounds make words and which combinations of words are meaningful. Linguistic practices thus define a kind of linguistic space, a structure within which the poet operates. And there are finer grain structures within that space that, that further define the poet's activity. The poet may be writing a sonnet or an epic poem or a haiku and so on. Again, we may think of these types as structures within which the poet operates and that help to define what kind of thing the poet produces. So also with music, like linguistic practices, musical practices define structures and substructures within which music happens. For example, at a fairly high level of abstraction, we find structures such as the structure of tones in the Western chromatic scale, all the notes on a piano keyboard. Already, this structure is complex and actually somewhat difficult to specify when you start trying to do it carefully, and itself has evolved in various ways, for example, in response to the need for equally tempered keyboard instruments. Within that, if, if, you, if that was too technical of a point, just forget about it. Within that structure are finer grain structures, such as the Greek modes, the medieval church modes, the modern major and minor scales, and many others. I'm just scratching the surface of a very intricate structure of tones that we can find just in the Western musical tradition. Similar points can be made about rhythm. The matter, again, becomes technical and intricate, but the idea is the same. Temporal structures, temporal structures given by concepts like regulation, beat, and meter, create a space in which the rhythmic or temporal aspects of music, musical pieces can live. Collectively, structures involving sound and time determine a space within which it's possible to characterize musical structures from Gregorian chant to 80s punk rock to African moringa to Indian raga. The list is so long that there isn't a list. More precisely, I would say that there are two features that make these musical structures definitive of the kind of thing that a musical piece is. The first is simply that they exist as the result of actual musical practice. These are not theoretical objects. These are objects that arise naturally from actual musical practice. That's an important part of my own story here. The second, which is really a precondition of the first, is that they have an appropriate degree of specificity and generality. They're specific enough that musical instructions make sense in their context. You can, a composer can write a piece and a performer knows what to do upon seeing the instructions of that piece. But they're general enough to sustain practice. So for example, people who engage in the practice will not too quickly grow tired of it, which allows it actually to become an identifiable practice. Now there's room for debate, of course, and there's plenty of gray area and fuzzy borders. Somebody might argue that 80s punk rock is defined by too narrow of a structure to sustain practice. It all sounds the same, someone might say. Or maybe it's all of a piece with 90s grunge. Maybe it's just a part of a, of a different structure. One might be tempted to say similar things about Catholic folk masses of the 1970s. Perhaps the structures of this practice are just too impoverished to constitute a bona fide practice. 
or perhaps they're just included in the larger practice of mid 20th century folk music. That's the thing about practices. There are not clear principles of identity or individuation. History rather than analysis is the tool for evaluation of what genuinely counts as a practice in my sense. I think it's good enough for us that there are paradigm examples. And at least from a 40,000 foot view, it's easy to see how they define pieces of music as being such and such a type of thing, a rock ballad, an introit chant, an Indian raga, a classical piano sonata, a Dixieland standard, etc., etc., etc. These practices thus help to specify musical integrity, and in doing so, they prompt answers to the other questions about beauty. What constitutes due proportion in music is given by a musical practice. In some musical forms of Western practices, adding the seventh to a major, major chord is an ugly mistake and in others it's permitted. If you don't know what adding the seventh is, don't worry about it, just it's a way, it's a, way a chord can sound. And in yet others, it's expected, if not required, especially at the end of a piece. Similarly, a listener who's unaccustomed to West African drumming is likely to hear its polyrhythms and its polymeters as more or less a random jumble of sounds. I, I mentioned the example of Gregorian chant above. In other words, what constitutes due proportion and the ability to discern it is to be referred to this notion of a musical practice from which we get ideas about what sort of thing a musical piece might be. The structures and superstructures of a musical practice also afford the possibility of musical meaning and therefore the possibility of conveying a musical idea. Let's consider again the tune of the first half of the irresistible and striking com composition morning song <laughs> to a normal listener participant in the West in the Western tradition, let me, let me sing it again. Da, 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 da. That tune conveys at least one simple idea. It conveys the idea there's more to come. This is not the end. It creates an expectation. That effect of the tune is why the lyric, which is a question, makes sense to this tune. Would you like some coffee? Similarly, the next part of the tune conveys the idea, and now we're done. Yes, I'd like some coffee. Let's compose a little more. Would you like some cream in it? There's another musical question. And note that the a different melody wouldn't work as well. For example, would you like some cream in it? That's not a question, that's a statement because that melody conveys the wrong sort of musical idea. Would you like some cream in it? Yes, I'd like some cream. Aha, what happened there? It's sort of done, but not completely done. That's because in the Western structure, we've ended on a note that's less unfinished than the previous one. In other words, it's more finished, but it's not as finished as it could be. So listeners within our tradition will apprehend here a resting point, but not the end. There's more to come, sorry. <clears throat> Here's your lovely coffee. Another aha, right? This tune's just like the first. And so now we've been alerted to a new level of musical structure, a kind of repetition of an idea. Let's finish the song. Thank you very much. And now we're done. Now, I don't know about you, but that's how it goes at my house every morning. <clears throat> There are a thousand more things that we could say about this simple example. Imagine then the depths that could be plumbed in the consideration of the complete space of musical possibility 
offered by a bona fide musical practice. The other day I read a book by a musicologist, most of which was concerned with the notion of rhythm, meter, and beat in the later songs of the band Radiohead, a whole book. From the point of view of Western musical tradition, that's a pretty narrow focus, and yet there was plenty to be said, studied, and considered. My point is that at least some musical practices contain within them a treasury of musical ideas, and music as music can convey these ideas and can do so well or badly, clearly or obscurely. Doing it clearly with clarity in the sense described earlier is a contributor to beauty. <clears throat> so last section, relativism in old clothes. <clears throat> I'm really just opening the door here to an account of musical beauty and we're peeking in, uh, but I need to just leave the door open and start to wrap things up. If you've been following, you might be thinking, hold on, I think he just argued that just as there can be beautiful chant in Renaissance masses and classical sonatas, so also there can be beautiful punk. And I did, sort of. The account of beauty towards which I'm gesturing, the account on the other side of the door that I've merely just opened, is that the requirements of musical beauty, proportion, clarity, integrity, are given by musical practices. In a sense, they have to be, because musical pieces are like houses, they're artifacts. Unlike sunflowers, musical pieces as artifacts do not have a natural what it is that can serve as the idea whose clear and proportionate exhibition creates beauty. Instead, just as the practices that involve houses determine what counts as a good house, so also musical practices determine what counts as proportion, clarity, and integrity. Now, before you get too upset with me, there's three crucial provisos that I need to at least mention, although I can't explore them. The first proviso is that what matters on this account are practices, not persons. The individual architect can plan an ugly house, one that fails to convey any interesting or valuable architectural idea in the context of practices surrounding the building and using of houses. If the house then gets built according to that plan, it does not thereby acquire requirements of beauty on the account that I'm proposing. So my account of beauty is thus not that anything goes. And in particular, it explicitly opposes a commonly expressed aim of art and artists to reject all form or to exist outside the confines of any practice both of which are phrases you can easily find on placards in museums of art, and also on the contemporary equivalent of album jackets, whatever that is. The second proviso is that I've been speaking as if the only thing that matters for beauty is the manner in which, and the extent to which, and the clarity with which an idea as defined by a practice is exhibited. However, that manner of speaking is misleading because our artistic practices happen in communities, communities in which other types of practice also take place. Therefore, at least in the most common cases, especially in representational art, it can be difficult and perhaps in some cases impossible to consider the artwork purely as an artwork, isolated from the other practices of the community and from what is represented, especially if the art is representational. There's exceptions and often they're the works of genius, but in general, we do find it difficult to perceive a thing without reference to pre-consisting associations. And in those cases, when the associations aren't helpful, beauty can be difficult to achieve. For example, 
When I stand under a brutalist church, and under is really the best preposition to describe it, I feel oppressed. One could argue that I just haven't worked hard enough at honing my capacity to apprehend architectural modernism, and maybe that's the problem. But maybe the problem is that brutalist buildings look like the worst sort of prisons. Music is especially prone to this kind of extra musical association uh, just because of the way it affects, I think, how we think uh, and how we remember things. So a bride walking down the aisle to hail to the thief. It might be a funny joke, but it's not a wedding. The third proviso is that there's no reason to expect that all artistic practices are on a par with respect to the potential for their artworks to be beautiful. Although we haven't explored this point here, beauty comes in degrees. That's, to, that's a commonplace observation. And thus, different practices may differ in the depth and breadth of the resources that they have available for constituting uh, greater or lesser beauty in music. There's only so many ways that one can play a sequence of three or four power chords on a guitar, and thus a musical practice such as 80s punk rock that largely limits itself in such fashion will thereby potentially be limited in the range and complexity of the ideas that can be exhibited within that practice, and thus the depth with which its music can exhibit features of beauty. This observation is decidedly not to say, to some of your chagrin, I'm sure, that punk rock is bad music. Some of it is and some of it isn't. But it is to say that it's potentially severely limited in comparison to some other practices. I say potentially because a full exploration of the possibilities allowed by the practice is not really what I'm about here. And of course, there's a lot more to a song than its chord structure. So the account that we've been exploring, if only in a very preliminary way, is at least potentially in some ways permissive and in other ways rather conservative. I say potentially because we haven't really explored the account in sufficient detail to understand its consequences, but I'm optimistic that a more thorough investigation of this proposed way to pursue the great theory in the context of music will show that it affords reasonable judgments and reasonable broad-mindedness about musical beauty while not implying that anything goes or that all musical practices are equally capable of producing the best music. And already that situation would be an improvement over the theory, if we can call it such, that has, that has replaced the great theory in our times. Okay, I'm not gonna go to the last section, which is about what is music good for. If you wanna talk about that topic, I'm happy to, but I think we should, I think we should end it right there. Thank you very much.